Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey friends, my name is Andre and this is the Tennis and Bagels podcast and um it's been so long that I almost almost messed up like my uh, my intro almost messed it up. So uh, and we're finally here with the whole crew and it's been a long while because we've been um, doing our lives and uh, always been in university and so has Vonch and we really just wanted to take a time to talk about Miami because well first ATP Masters 1000 of the year first WT not first WT 1000 of the year but um. What would have been, I think, the first mandatory? Vansh, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm, I'm pretty sure Dubai was the first mandatory. Yeah, you're 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 right. Uh, this is this is the, this is the first uh, premier mandatory. Uh, Dubai okay. was Dubai was a 1,000 as well, but this is the first like big of big, yeah. big event since uh, Australia. So okay, great. So so then there we have it. So there will be the first um, big biggest the biggest non Grand Slam tournament of the year. Um, and obviously we had some really good wins and really good matches and really good stories this week as well. Um, and as you've heard, Vansh is here and always here. How are you guys doing? I'm excited to, to be back. Uh, I missed you guys the past, the past one month or so. Um, but, uh, it's been, it's been good, uh, kind of, um, getting back into watching a lot of tennis, um, after my uh, final exams for university finished. I got a chance to really watch Miami uh, in full, both the men's and women's side. And like you said, there's a lot of great uh, storylines and a lot of things that we learned and we can take away from uh, going for the rest of the season moving forward. And so on on both tours and so a uh, lot to get into. So I'm super excited. Yeah, well said. I'm excited to be here too. I was able to watch more of this tournament than any other since Australia. And even though it still wasn't quite as much as I would have liked, it was really nice to watch a few matches in full. And I'm I'm excited to be back here talking about tennis because I've been tweeting a lot. I wrote a little bit, but nothing quite compares to being able to talk freely about matches. So really good to have the whole crew back. Hmm. Yeah, it's cool. And I've been writing quite a bit as well. Like you can find now my text on tenniscanada.com, which is really fun. (laughs) But yeah, um, was I think this week um, we had a couple interesting notes, I guess, to take off. Like first of all, it would be the lack of the big three on the men's side, and um, the completely um, not unexpected, but like um, a little bit surprising comeback from Bianca Andreescu to basically her um, pre-pandemic levels. Um, which, uh, like, I mean, obviously preceded, obviously, the uh, the injuries and whatnot. But, like, uh, um, and I, I guess this time, because um, of this story and because the, the, the WTA draw was actually much fuller this time with, like, uh, bigger names. And, of course, the WTA essentially has big names up until the top 30 mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, player in the world, which is really, really, really awesome to watch. 
Um, let's just start with that one. Like, how 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 do you guys assess the um, the women's draw in the women's tournament this year? Yeah, I think you you said it well when you said there's a lot of depth and uh, you know a lot of essentially the top thirty and even players beyond that. It's so um, impressive, really, the amount of parity and depth and variety of players that we have now in the women's game. And you know, basically everyone was there except for Serena Williams. Um, pretty much every single WTA player of name uh, was there, and they were all there. All the ones that we expected to go really deep. I'm, I mean, I guess um, Bianca um, was surprising that she was able to win four three setters in a row and really take that momentum and carry it into the final, even though I feel like we were a bit cheated, honestly, in the final, um, just as fans, because we were expecting a really grand match and first time meeting between Barty and, uh, and Drescu. Um, that was that really promised to deliver, but I guess um, physically Andrescu for Andrescu was a it was a match too far I think uh, for her for her unfortunately, but she showed a lot of fight and she kept uh, trying to battle and um, yeah and it was a good finish um, with with Ash Barty obviously uh, cementing her status as, as the as the number one because she was gone for the whole year last year, but essentially she finished. Uh, essentially, there were a lot of doubters of her saying you know that she shouldn't be. Uh, she's not quite fully deserving of this uh, ranking, which in some ways is um, is true. But then again, you can't. Uh, she showed why she's so good and why she got there in the first place in 2019 with her her variety and everything she can do on the court. And she was really able to put it together. I thought, and you know, it was a it was an impressive tournament. Like like so many great matches in the quarters and semis. You know, even even you know early rounds um Barty was on the brink of defeat you know match point down i believe against Kristina Kuchova if i'm not mistaken earlier on the tournament and i think once she got through that and uh saved a bunch of break points late and a match point even with an inside out forehand winner i think that really freed her up for the rest of her um matches which were not easy she had to go through Azarenka and Sabalenka and um yeah Svitolina in the semis so really well deserved victory and uh, you know what a humbling and deserving champion uh, uh, at the end, and you know she's only going to get better from here. I think uh, with the clay and grass coming up, she's proven herself. She's a French Open champion, mm-hmm. and she can play on all surfaces. And you know it's just nice to have everybody. I think back in the mix. I think what the women's game is going to need moving forward is more of these rivalries of Grand Slam champions, so just like so Osaka and Barty and Andrescu, but also you know Sviantek and Kennan and you know, more of those players really establishing themselves so we can grow the interest of the sport outside of just us uh, tennis nerds and we can expand to more casual fans. So I guess that was my main takeaway from from the women's tournament. I know uh, Owen definitely has uh, watched the Cerebus Tormo and Andrescu match in full and you can read his blog on on uh, at Tennis Nation and he's, he's done a wonderful <laughs> job of uh, live blogging those, those matches and great takeaways and observations. But... Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, those are some of my takeaways, grander from the from the Miami. Yeah, well, th- thank you for the shout out, Vonch. I appreciate that. And I-, I think this women's tournament really had everything. We had heavyweight clashes from pretty early in the tournament with uh, Barty and Azarenka matchups like that. We had a huge upset where uh, Maria Sakari took out Osaka for the loss of just four games. Right. We had physical gr- grinds like. Uh, Basically every match Sarah Cerebus Tormo played, especially the one against Andrescu. And while the final did disappoint in terms of competitiveness, I don't think anyone can argue that Barty isn't a deserving champion or that we didn't get loads of great matches over the two weeks. So I, I was really happy because we got all kinds of matches. There were demolitions. There were really close ones like uh, Sakari and Pagula. 
Asakori saved us six match points, I think five of them with winners. Um, so it, overall, it was just a very, very satisfying tournament of tennis on the women's side. Yeah, I guess um, if I if I have to say like a word about the final is that um, it's uh, it's disappointing just the way it ended for me. Not necessarily because of any any of the tournament that Bianca Andrescu had. It's just yeah. it's it, especially for a Canadian like to see her going out with an injury it was just a scary moment. But luckily, she just she did um, confirm after the match in a, in a in an Instagram story post, I think, that it wasn't anything serious. That she's going to be back soon. Unfortunately, she's not going to be present in the uh, Billie Jean King Cup coming up. Um, but so long as we get to see more of her um, very soon, that's great because honestly, it's it's the type of player that like you can't believe how much you miss her. Like once uh, she steps back on court, uh, the amount of epic matches that she's brought like uh, this week was totally worth it. The the time spent on the tournament uh, and obviously for body amazing tournament as well um i, I guess just like she said in, she said in the uh, press conference she doesn't have to prove anything to anybody mm-hmm. she's she's the number one because she's the number one things are things are this way not to protect any um any one player in particular but i guess it is mostly because to um um handle the fact that some players might as well choose not to play because they can't or they um they would rather stay home for the time of the pandemic but um yeah Honestly, she she came out and played great tennis. Um, I watched a bit of her match against Vitalina and um, classic party slice slice backhands and uh, lots of variation. Great forehand. Her serving was impeccable, even on the on those lower courts. Like she was serving, she was saving break points with aces like time and time again. So it, it was great to see. Uh, she was just like the the ice cold face, like the game face that she puts on, and she just goes on, on onto the matches and brings on her her a game which is aggressive but very controlled you can see that it's almost like no shot is unplanned she doesn't do anything um on the fly it, it's, it seems like she's she almost has like a she almost always has like a very good idea of what's happening which is really fun to watch and uh, yeah and um i guess like it, interesting that um we touch on sorry Bistromo as well uh because she she has been making strides, obviously, in her career um, so far. But I think that's probably one of her biggest um, um, announcements that she's there, like one of her biggest statements, I guess, as a tournament. Um, because like she obviously um, got to a final, I think. And um, she also won her first tournament, first WTA tournament in Guadalajara, yeah. uh, which was a 250. It wasn't an incredibly deep field, but um, oops, um, but it was... It was. It's a first tournament, and every time that you win a first, it's always feels good and gives you confidence. And it was only her time coming. It was only a matter of time until she got there. And to play such a high level match with uh, such intensity that I, I, I think it's so exclusive of like the not exclusive, but like such a characteristic of Spanish tennis, um, which is just the fight uh, and just bringing balls back every time and. Being essentially a wall, um, the fact that Bianca Andreescu got through that was very, very impressive and very encouraging, I guess, for us uh, Canadian fans. Um, yeah. When I say us, I obviously don't mean you guys, but uh, right. <laughs> but as tennis fans, you can be happy about that one too. But yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I that, mean, Sarah Saribes. Biggest takeaway. Huh? Yeah. 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 Very well said. I think Sarah Saribes has shown a lot because uh, you know, for many, she was labeled as a. She's always been a very tenacious competitor, like very feisty and 
brings a lot of uh, intensity to the court and has great uh, court coverage and you know such a great uh, like you said like model for like Spanish tennis but she's translated her clay court some of her clay court success which is like wins over Osaka um, last year uh, before the restart um, at Fed Cup where she frustrated Osaka so much with her um, uh, with the way she was defending and getting so many balls back and very scrappy adept behind the baseline controlling uh, from the midcourt um, she doesn't have a very big serve but she boy does she make up for everything else you know because she can she can come up with big shots when she needs them with with offense she can use um, both topspin and slice on the backhand in, def- in defense which I really uh, enjoyed watching um, and uh, she's beaten so many different type of players she made the final of Guadalajara but she also then backed it up like the, the very next week and lost the only uh player that she lost to in that stretch was Leila Annie Fernandez, if I'm not mistaken, like seven five seven five uh on the road when Fernandez won her first title as well. So she's uh, she's really proven herself. And this week she beat like the likes of Rabakina, Jabur, you know, all these players are higher ranked than her. And she put up a really nice fight against uh, Andrescu and Andrescu had to dig so deep. There were so many breaks in that match and the way Andrescu uh, fought, she showed her mental toughness really at the end and really uh, just went for it physically because uh, Saribas Tormo was making life extremely difficult for her and yeah. she, she found a way through and I think uh, that should give Andrescu a lot of confidence uh, moving forward moving forward as well. And then um, you mentioned her in the final. I think it was a very mature decision of hers to pull the ripcord at 4-0 in that second set. Um, in the moment mm-hmm. she was in tears, she was extremely distraught, frustrated. Um, but I think she realized that she's probably not going to win this match. And you could tell that even physically, she was not 100% even before she injured her foot. And it, in the medical timeout, her foot was so heavily st- strapped with tape that it just didn't seem feasible or smart to continue and you know further damage it and you know potentially risk uh, six more months or one year of being out of the game which after everything she's gone through in 15 months would be such heartbreak for so many people in tennis and her especially um with all the rehab and all the start and stop and so it was uh, I thought a very mature decision because at times in 2019 I felt like she was on the great run and but she was over pushing herself and um you know almost wanting to prove that she can you know basically fight through anything but at the cost of um it cost her a lot of time away from the game and so it was good to see that maturity and yeah disappointing but not take nothing away from her tournament it was it was fat it was brilliant yeah just to I, see her back on the court I, I totally agree i think the doubts we have about andrescu are about whether she can hold up physically without getting injured for a while it's not about her peak level so i think like everyone knows now that she can compete against the best and when the biggest tournament so i agree that it was the right decision to retire even if it was a bit of a shame because she had played so many close matches she had fought so hard and even though it was the smart decision it doesn't change the facts that it happened in the biggest match she played this tournament so i think it was a shame and um like for her obviously it's just really bad luck and on cerebus tormo I'm, I'm so glad this has come up because i thought she was so fun to watch this tournament i think she's not only a great example for spanish players but i think overall she is a fantastic blueprint for the player that is not blessed with easy power, like as they're growing up, because not only does she use her depth and topspin as weapons, but she uses a weapon that isn't even a shot. It's her physicality. She is so fit that she will just play these long, long rallies. And 
objectively, Andrescu's game is much better than hers. And yet, it was a really close match. Like, on the first point of the match, they played a 22-shot rally, and she was defending and defending, and then eventually she chased down a volley and hit a passing shot, and she made Andrescu come to net a lot to try to shorten these rallies. And that was actually quite a fun part of the match, because Andrescu is not a volleyer by nature, so she missed some volleys, she missed some smashes, um, and Cerebus uh, Tormo made her play from more uncomfortable positions than she's used to. And Andrescu did so well to come through that match, played a great return game to break it to all, and then consolidated holding from low 40 down. And even though she was the one who was struggling more physically, she not only ended up winning that match, but then won her next one as well, where she was pushed to the brink by Sakari. So, yeah, she served I, for the match Sakari, yeah, yeah. 6-5 in the third set, so that was, yeah. and, that was uh, incredible. And in the first set of that match, uh, there was a tiebreak, and Andrescu's backhand was really faltering at the start of it. But by the end, it came back, and she actually hit a backhand winner on set point. And so she still has confidence in her shots, even if they break down at times. She ba- she backs herself in the big moments. Mentally, we saw she was more steady than Sakari. And so I think even though she ultimately fell short of the title, uh, if her if her body is holding up, nothing but encouraging signs. Uh, this Miami Open for Bianca Andreescu. Yeah, absolutely. And one more thing is also before the Cerebus Tormal match, you know, there was a lot of hype because she had she was going up against Amanda Anisimova, which was like mm-hmm. a classic three setter. It was seven six six seven six four, and she fought her way through that in almost three hours. I think it was two hours forty minutes. And uh, you know, the, the some of the ball striking that was on display in that match was just surreal because Anisimova is a player with a really crisp and clean backhand. And mm. when she's in position, she can absolutely rip that thing down the line and cross. And she's just a, a great ball striker. And when her movement is on and, and a huge yeah. forehand when her, you know, when she's set in place and her feet are in position and it was just, uh, and she's also a Roland Garros uh, semifinalist and one of these young guys, I think from uh, 2001 born. So, um, just a year younger than Andrescu herself. And so it was a great clash there. And then to back that up and then go against uh, Garbina Muguruza, who's 18 and four yeah. on the year and has, and won Dubai and, you know, was the favorite going into that match, honestly, because she was, she's probably been the second best player um, before Miami, like uh, other than Osaka, I'd say, uh, and just her level. And she shows up every week with uh, what a ruthless competitor she's become week in and week out. And so she was down a set in that match, and it really looked like Muguruza was going to win it, you know, mm-hmm. to me. And and but Bianca just turned that on, turned it on, and her squash shot and, and defense in that match were just sublime. Yeah. You know, the way she was the, the, that one squash shot that was yeah, incredible, incredible. Like, Even she didn't, couldn't believe it. it was such a yeah. such a great reaction as well. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the way she hit that shot, it was like it was supposed to hang up like a lob, but it just like shot through the court, and it was like a winner. It was it was unbelievable. It was um, fantastic. Yeah. yeah, if I'm if I'm on the WTA, that match intimidates me more of Andrescu than any other she played because Muguruza was in form. She won the first set, right. and Andrescu didn't just come back and win. When she won decisively, it was six two in the third set, and. uh and Muguruza has arguably been the most consistent WTA player of the year. Osaka lost early at this tournament, correct? Yeah, and and lost somewhat lopsidedly. So, so I I think yeah that that was incredible, and that shows probably more than any other match she played how high her peak is because when she's on, she can beat anyone. Yeah, yeah. I think that that match was one that lots of people were just calling essentially like the um. I don't want to say make or break, but like the, it was like it was a match to watch for Andrescu because like um, and the fact that she came through is like really put a sigh of relief. She's like, yes, she's she's, she's most certainly back. Yeah, yeah. like she can yeah. she can do this. Uh, it was great to see that she actually managed to do this another 
two times, like a, four, uh, four three-setters, four top three-setters in one tournament. It's really good to see. Yeah. And uh, switching the focus a little bit, like if we go back to um, another player that we have already mentioned, Osaka. Right, yeah, we should talk very, about her. Yeah, very, um, very, I won't say strange loss, but like very uncharacteristic of her to go down that badly. Sakaria Sakura is playing magnificent. She was playing exactly how you should play against a player who is not at their best. Just going for her shots and making sure that she does not get to her best. Just, just close the door entirely on that one. Um, mm-hmm. And absolutely all credit to her. But Osaka had, on the first set, like something like 14 or 16 unforced errors to no winners. Um, yeah. And as much as Sakura is fit and defends really well, it's definitely not a great stat for Osaka to not hit a single winner. Um, she was not hitting quite well at all. My my initial um, reaction was it's probably the wind is bothering her a lot. I'm not entirely sure, uh, but like I, I would imagine a player of her caliber would would be more able to uh, deal with that. So I don't know. Maybe it was just an entirely just an, just an off day, which is doesn't happen extremely often, but it can happen. Mm-hmm. So what do you guys think? This was a very interesting result, in my opinion, to analyze. Just because, um, like you said, Osaka was the most informed player. She was on a 23-match winning streak, and hard courts is her thing, and she lives in Miami. And, you know, even though it was her first quarterfinal here, there was she was everything. I think she lives in, in L.A., uh, by the way. Going into... Uh, sorry, wait, what? <laughs> I think she lives in Beverly Hills. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, she trains here and she has a home here. And so she's, uh, she's, I was saying like, she's very comfortable in the conditions. And so I just felt like uh, she was, she was a favorite going into that match, even if uh, Sakari had saved six match points the round before. And I imagine that gave her a lot of freedom uh, because when you save match points in that kind of a fashion and the way she saved those match points, I mean, three of those six match points that she saved were with forehand winners, you know, inside in and out. And she was, she was, fearless and ripping the ball and you know Pegula didn't really lose that match I felt like uh, Sakari won it and she was extremely uh, like what a fighter she is you know and then she goes up against Osaka who she's had some success against before but Osaka's leads that head-to-head 3-1 and you know she's at her best and Sakari's at her best you'd you'd still expect uh, Osaka to win but Osaka was far from her best in the first set mm-hmm. I mean uh, 12 unforced errors zero winners and only won eight total points. And yeah. her first serve percentage was way down. Like it was in the 30s. And she was barely winning any free points. And she went up 40-love in one of the service games in the first set and, and lost first that game. First game of the match. She was up 40-love and, and got first broken. First game of the match, right. And and since then, I mean, I mean and her second serve speed, she was serving very, very slow, her, her second serve. And Sakari was uh, returning that thing really well. And she was taking full advantage of a subpar Osaka and I think a lot of factors played into it one was the wind like you mentioned I think that definitely bothered her uh and when uh, looking back at the match um she was uh her feet were not um in position as uh like they are normally and she wasn't you know just completely on it and she was she just looked flat to me like uh, emotionally something was something uh, just didn't feel quite right Maybe it's that she got a walkover earlier in the uh, in the tournament, uh, but she did bounce back from that walkover nicely and beat uh, Elise Mertens three and three. So I felt like she was going to be uh, she was going to be ready. But um, take nothing away from Sakari because then in the second set uh, she goes up a break uh, Osaka 
uh, two love, three love, actually, and then and consolidates. And so, and so you're thinking that uh, she's probably going to win the second set, maybe, and maybe she'll have some tough moments and then probably run away with it in third. But uh, boy, did uh, Sakari really dig in. And there was one game where she was... Um, where she broke back Sakari and then they were at four all and Osaka was again 40 love up and then Sakari hits this uh, brilliant lob that goes over Osaka's head and then uh, from there it's just a couple of loose errors and uh, great returns and then next thing you know Sakari is serving for the for the match and probably her biggest win so it was a uh, I think the second set was overall a little bit of a better level, but I think uh, Naomi mentioned after the match she was just disappointed with her tournament as a whole. She mentioned that she felt like uh, it was hard for her to compete compete against the best players in the world without having the best tennis, is what she said. And mm-hmm. then she was also asked a little bit about um, you know uh, the number one ranking, and I found that answer to be quite interesting because uh, Matt Roberts from the Tennis Podcast, the last question he asked in that te- uh, press conference was, how do you think uh, the possibility of the number one ranking being online with you and Ash, you know, how did that maybe influence the outcome today? And she, she mentioned that when she was told about it and earlier in the press conference, it was looming in the back of her mind. And she felt like that could have, um, that additional pressure is something she's still learning to cope with, which is very re- revealing for somebody of her, uh, uh, you know, nature, four-time Grand Slam champion. I find that really uh, just awesome to listen to that she has that uh, perspective and uh, she knows that uh, she knows herself well and she's willing to be honest about that because that's some good insight that I didn't uh, I wasn't expecting to hear but uh, uh, good on her for delivering that and then also yeah I think she'll go to it now yeah she's been yes. world number one in uh, 2019 for about 25 weeks but uh, uh, if she had uh, you know won this tournament she would have been number one and taken it over from from Barty. So uh, that was in the back of her her mind when she was told of, of that. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, so yeah, you, I don't have I don't have too much to add to that. I think what impressed me most from Sakari was the second set because uh, at four two she played a really good game to break back. She was down break point at three four, right? And she ended up holding there. And Osaka at four all forty love. She pulled Sakari way off the court with an angled backhand, and then she didn't hit the backhand down the line hard enough. Uh, it let Sakari get back over and hit the lob. That should have been a winner. But um, and then after that, Osaka won one point for the rest of the match. And right. so I think I think she was never at her best. She she played at a decent level for much of the second set, but it still speaks to how good of a player she was. That despite all this, she had three game points for five four in the second set. So um, so I think even though she wasn't close to her best, Sakura still had to work for this one. And I think I think it's definitely not how she would have wanted to end the hard court swing at this start of the year. But I think she said in press as well, headed headed into clay, she's looking forward to it because there's not a lot of pressure on her. So I so I think and and she was on a winning streak so I don't think this loss raises any alarm bells. I think I'd agree with that. Something that I um just worry slightly for her is uh, lack of matches because she's pulled mm. out of uh, Stuttgart which is uh, which is a tournament she normally plays and she played in 2019. And so I just hope she's going to have the right balance between uh, matches and uh, you know time on the clay because obviously clay is uh, one of the surfaces she's yet to get past the third round of the French Open. And so that's going to be a big storyline is to see how, how she performs on on clay because um, last year she did well in Madrid and Rome and got to quarters and quarters and uh, semis of Stuttgart before and then made the third round at the French. But uh, this year she's going to be, she cited homesickness as a reason of uh, pulling out of Stuttgart. And so she's going to have basically just Madrid and Rome and it's going to have some points to defend. And so it's going to be interesting to see how she 
matches up and if she plays some of these players like a Cerebus Tormo or some of these other players oh, that yeah. we're talking about, like even a Jen Brady or somebody of uh somebody like a Barty or, you know, and rescue, yes please, you know, and yeah. other players of that of that elk, you know, it would be so fun. Such a great uh storylines in the women's game right now. And so it would be great. And just one more thing I forgot to mention about Cerebus Tormo is she was down five uh, one in the third set in her first match against Bernardo Pera in two match points. Mm-hmm. And she came out of that. And then she beat Brady. And then she beat Rubakina. And then she beat Jabor. And then she gave uh, Andrescu quite a run. So, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. thanks for pointing that out. She was definitely one of the top three revelations of the tournament for me. Yeah. yeah. And uh, now that you mentioned it, you guys both mentioned a little bit about uh, what, what's next. And um, since uh, we're moving on to the clay season where things are very different uh, not only on the men's side but on the women's side as well like uh, it's interesting how a lot of the newcomers were actually performing well um men's side women's side as well we got medvedev and uh, osaka probably the biggest um the biggest uh players of both sides were in the youngest uh, generations mm-hmm. of course medvedev is a little bit older but regardless um they mm-hmm. tend to yeah. not exactly perform as well on clay um so what do you guys expect for um upcoming tournaments in, in madrid and um, whatever comes first, I think it's Charleston uh, the week after this or this week. Yeah, this week. Um, I don't believe uh, uh, Osaka is not playing in Charleston this week, but uh, interestingly, Barty is. So that'll be interesting to see how she mm-hmm. does uh, the week straight after. And uh, there's some good players in this uh, uh, Charleston draw, like three top ten players, and playing. And it, obviously, uh, Barty, uh, Roland Garros champion, so she doesn't really yeah. fit in the description that I just gave. But <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, just pointing out that uh, she's she's playing again this week, so it's uh, going to be interesting to see if she has a letdown or she can carry that momentum mm-hmm. forward. But uh, but on Osaka, I expect more from her than I do from a guy like Medvedev. Um, yes, just because I, agree. I think uh, I think she's she's such a big hitter, and she can hit. She can. There's some players that she can even hit through against uh, on the clay, and I think uh, she has a big serve, and so she can rely a little bit on that. It's just that it takes away some of her uh, some of her other strengths. Like she's more comfortable moving on hard court. And so I think getting used to the movement and getting that reps and match practice kind of under your belt, I think that'll be key for her. Um, but it's just going to be about uh, specific matchups. There's just more players on clay that can hurt her than on yeah. hard court. You know, suddenly Halep becomes a much bigger threat on clay. Yeah. Um, the likes of Sviantec, who won the French Open last year, dropping just 28 games. Um, who lost early, by the way, in in, in Miami, but... Uh, uh, but she's going to be really good on clay. So then, and then you have Muguruza as well. She was also won the French Open, and she's uh, she's very comfortable on on clay. She's on clay and grass. So uh, it, it'll it'll be interesting. But I ex- certainly expect more from her than I did in 2019. I think the good thing is there'll be less pressure and expectations on her, and mm-hmm. so it'll just be nobody's expecting her to go and win the French Open. So I think if she can get to like a quarterfinal or something. That would be a, a reasonable expectation, and it's something that's uh, achievable, I'd say, with a uh, with some with the right amount of matches and right amount of training under her belt. But what do you yeah, think? I, I think so too. I think. I mean, the difference is once she goes on to clay, not every match she plays is on her racket anymore. I think even a player like Sloane Stevens on her day, who was a Roland Garros final, finalist, could trouble her or beat her. Mm-hmm. But I think, like you said, the pressure isn't super high relative to what she's achieved on hard court. She doesn't have a high bar to clear on clay to surpass what she's done in the past. So I think, yeah. I think, like you said, she should keep her goals achievable in her mind. I like quarterfinals, semifinals, um, stuff to build off of. 
And maybe we can uh, segue into uh, the men's side here. Um, if if we look yeah. at Medvedev, who has never won a match at Roland Garros and sometimes seems to be pretty clueless on really slow courts, I definitely have higher expectations for... Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like Chris, Cliff Drysdale didn't do his homework when he made that prediction, isn't it? Um, <laughs> because Medvedev in his Sorry, match against... <laughs> yeah, Medvedev in his match against Batista Agut um, after the first set just looks completely lost out there. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm curious to what you guys thought about that. Oh, yeah. hey, we should probably, we'll get to Hercotch, but uh, start with this. Yeah, firstly, the big storyline is there was no big three and no Dominic team. So um, you're looking at Medvedev was the favorite to win this tournament. And, uh, you know, Medvedev and I guess the three other guys just, just below him with, uh, you know, Zverev, Tsitsipas and Rublev. But I guess um, with him earlier in the tournament, uh, one thing is that I, 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 for some reason, I was one of those people that uh, wasn't expecting him to win, but I was expecting him to lose if he did, like, in a really tight match. Yeah. And so um, the storyline with him early in the tournament was that he played against Lexi Popperin and he started cramping in that third set and started walking like Charlie Chaplin. And <laughs> just some of the memes that were on tennis TV just, just made me laugh, even though it was uh, it was tough to watch. But uh, once he got out of a match like that, I was, uh, I was a little bit concerned for him physically. And then he rebounded nicely and beat Tiafo. But then against Bautista Agut, a player who he's lost to twice and somebody he knows really well because they practiced together for two weeks in lockdown in Australia and just a flat ball striker, very, very tough on this, uh, on these slower hard courts and, you know, can trade with him metronomically, backhand to backhand, cross court and just stay with him, a super sturdy and tough guy to break down. And I thought, you know, the first eight games were so physical in that match mm-hmm. uh, that they played against uh, against each other and um, you know, Medvedev had like a game point at four all and he didn't convert it. And um, he had, he was 40, 15 up four all 40, 15 uh, in that first set. And then, uh, you know, Bautista Agut started stretching him uh, to the forehand side. And next thing you know, Medvedev is a little uh, uncomfortable. And now he's not getting any free points on his first serve. So uh, he, he defends really well. And you'd back him normally in long, long rallies. But that's also because he gets payoff by uh, hitting big first serves and getting some free points. And he was not getting that against Bautista Agut on these slow courts. And so I thought uh, credit to Bautista Agut because he played a fantastic match. But Medvedev uh, really capitulated, honestly, after he smashed his racket and he lost that first set. Um, he was not willing to dig in and suffer in the same ways that we know he can, or he's proven in the past, like in the ATP finals, when he beat uh, the top three guys in Djokovic team and Nadal, but, um, and team and Nadal was from a, from a, from a set yeah. down, right? So you, uh, at the ATP finals, yeah, against Nadal and team, he came back from a set down, but, uh, really in this match, he kind of capitulated in that, uh, second set and let Bautista good. A run with it. There was one point at uh, in the fourth game of the third set where he had two break points to break back. Yeah, and then they had this really long rally, uh, backhand to backhand, and really uh, physical was going really nicely. But Medvedev was finally stepping in and being aggressive and taking the ball earlier, and he got this uh, high backhand uh, that he took that instead of. Uh, letting it bounce and he would have had a nice uh, opportunity to finish the point and go on attack. He kind of uh, misjudged it and took it in the air from uh, basically <laughs> near the baseline, like a swing volley on the backhand. Yeah. So and much low percentage. Up, yeah. yeah. And it was a much, it was a very low percentage shot, like a brain fart from him completely. And and then from that, from that point on, he was, uh, it was a one way traffic for Bautista Agut. So uh, yeah, it was, it was disappointing to see him just crash out like that. And for somebody who finds so many ways to, win matches and is known as a chess master and tactically he's got so many plans but we've also seen now matches where if he's not willing to dig in and doesn't quite have the have it that day he can 
he he can still he's prone to these uh, these matches where he can just let go and so yeah. that was uh, sad to sad to see but full credit to it but he's still good yeah absolutely I don't think it, I f- I believe that maybe some sort of like pressure problems are coming up to him maybe these lower courts are also like um, coming um, to you know um, make the problem more severe but like uh, I think after the Australian Open where everybody was just essentially saying that he was going to be like Djokovic's biggest threat and then he loses like in three straight sets like pretty comprehensively he couldn't really find an answer maybe the maybe finally mentally it's got to him that he couldn't necessarily like compete and just probably got nervous and since then it's not like he's he's performed incredibly well after obviously like he he won a tournament um but uh you know I think um there was an issue with that in uh in Miami he was the absolute absolute favorite to win I particularly would imagine Tsitsipas would have been a little bit more of a challenge, though, because of his lower courts, and maybe the backhand would have been uh, a little bit more um, on point. Mm. But like um, uh, Medvedev uh, probably just uh, had his problems aggravated, like the, the pressure of like maybe yeah. um, winning yet another tournament, another big tournament. The big tw- the big three wasn't weren't there, so he was obviously the the biggest favorite, and then. Bows out to uh, Bautista Good. Obviously, he, he was a he has a two love record against him. Like obviously on the losing yeah. side though. Um. So um. So yeah. One thing I'll say on that yeah. about the pressure is I think you make a good point because I think that's true for all of the guys. I think it's true for Sitsipas. It's true for Rublev as well. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There was a big yeah. opportunity here. Yeah, and, it, it yeah. may have been easier for the other guys, like obviously Hukach, who won the tournament, um, yeah, right. to come up with this tournament with less pressure than the, the guys like uh, like Tsitsipas and... Uh, um, and Medvedev, who were obviously the, the number was numbers one and two and seeded uh, seeds and favorites to win the tournament, like we yeah. were all expecting a final from them because it's like, oh yeah, only the big three can stop them. So they obviously would probably get to the final and battle against each other, which is definitely no, no. It's at the end of the day, it's not what we got. Um, right. Obviously, full credit to the people who beat them. Hurkacz is an up and coming player who's essentially trying to find his range and he finally got to put it together for six matches and win a big tournament, the biggest one of his life. And Bautista Gut, who's obviously, um, everybody knows him as a veteran, who's um, beaten Djokovic, uh, who's, uh, you know, being incredibly, um, you know, like a, a force to reckon in uh, in, yeah, in, in tennis, a, really. So yeah. He has a lot of success against Djokovic. But I just think um, 
you know, Medvedev, at least he's won three Masters 1000s before. Yeah, and I think, it, you know, exactly. He's going I was going to say, a, like, he's won these before. He, he shouldn't he's have going felt to the be pressure. A, a factor. <laughs> yeah, that's, he could just that's write too. it off to, you know, a bad day or something like that. But I think a guy like Tsitsipas, for instance, who's yet to prove himself, like, because he, he has, he felt the weight and burden more, I'd say, because he was, um, you know, he's been losing a lot of these finals, like, uh, six uh, at the 500 level and then now two at the Masters 1000 level. And here there was a chance for him where, you know, there was no big three and no Dominic team. Mm. And he came up against Hercatch. He was 6-2, two, two love and break points for double break uh, to go to go ahead in that match. And, you know, it just, uh, he he also had a little bit of a self-implosion, I, I must say, because yeah. um, Hercatch played very well and he saved that game uh, with this really nice, uh, you know, slice uh, pass cross court. At Deuce uh, and and in that two love game to avoid going down double break, and then he's had some clutch serves, but then really after that it kind of um, it, the pressure got to him, and he admitted it in his press conference that he he felt the weight and he felt the burden. Yeah. So um, you know, and then and then he just got really frustrated and he started uh, yelling at his father when he went down uh, when he lost that second set and uh, had a big implosion and. Then he then at the change of ends he was he got a time violation and lost a serve because he was not ready to you know not he needed more time to regroup and so but he said okay I'll just take that time violation because I have to change my uh, sweatbands and my wristbands mm-hmm. and I have to uh, get on the court and it's just it was uncomfortable to uh, watch at times he and his uh, team go at it like that but um, and then he lost serve twice from forty love up yeah following in the footsteps of Osaka there it was a bit of a Bit of a bug so, going around with the top players losing their serve from 40 love yeah, up. Happens at 40 in the final, too. Right, exactly. And then some of that was also like Harkach was swinging freely. I watched some of those 40 love games back and noticed Harkach was uh, full on aggressive on those 40 love points because you don't have much to lose when you're down 40 love on the other guy's serve. Yeah. So he was hitting some good returns, but then some points where Sitsipas just shanking backhands or loose forehands and just when you're tight, your footwork gets off and. He just he he felt that weight a little bit similar to his loss against Chorich at the U.S. Open, where he just kind of he couldn't convert these uh, these opportunities that you had in these small margins, and then you know it just it, it made the difference. And then, um, so so that was an opportunity missed for him. And then you look at a guy like Rublev, who he then plays in the semis, yeah. so, and you're thinking Rublev's the guy who be- beats everybody he should beat, you know, ATP 500 king, and right. he's in and, the semifinals. And that did not translate to this tournament. Yeah, and and so so you'd have felt like with the, with that level of competition that he was beating in the five 500s, I mean, no disrespect to her catch, but he was in that mold of you know Rublev was certainly the favorite going in, right? Because yeah, exactly. He'd, he'd beaten Korda, and he was he was a. Uh, you know, on, on this run, and now it was all about him. Whether he he became the favorite suddenly for the title when Sitsipas lost, when Medvedev lost, Zverev gone, he was the favorite. So he didn't uh, capitalize on that on that opportunity, and he too was just uh, was just a little bit off that day, and uh, and her catch exploited it, and he did he did very well, and he he was the more aggressive player, which is very strange to say about Rublev, a guy who has a big serve and big forehand, and you know can really looks to dictate play, but he was the one who was uh, was beaten. Um, um, almost at his own game because her catch was so aggressive and he was taking the ball early and he hit more winners than Rublev, which very rarely happens. And he was winning more points on his first. His serve was much better than Rublev's in that match. He was winning more points on his first serve and second serve. He was absolutely crushing Rublev's second serve. Yeah. And he was, um, and it was really straightforward in that first set. He was 5-1 up. You could have even won it 6-1. And once Rublev's forehand and his serve deserted him he didn't unfortunately he doesn't quite have the the rest of the repertoire isn't the same you know he doesn't have the same tools in his toolbox as some of the other 
some of the other guys. So he just he's he's more of a player that has a that has a ceiling in that sense. And I'm not sure he'll ever develop that repertoire, but he can. But he's somebody who, if he maxes out on the skills that he has, you know, was certainly the favorite to win the, win that match. And so it just showed that, uh, you know, it's not. It's it's tougher when these guys are not around. Like it's just yeah. uh, you know when the big three are around, the spotlight and attention is not on this these next four guys or five guys. You know, mm-hmm. and so they they actually play a little bit better. They might not get the opportunity. They might not. They might not. Uh, they might lose a little earlier than normal. It might not. The draw might not open up. But their overall level and their you know their game is is I feel is uh, is certainly a little higher. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's that it's that concept. You just nailed it. So I yeah, think and, although although I will say, no matter how understandable this pressure is, uh, this is costly for all of these guys. I think Rublev, yeah, especially with it. with his more pronounced ceiling, he may not get another chance like this for a year. Could be more. Yeah. Like I think he's not going to win a Masters 1000 on clay. I can say that confidently. I think on the hard courts, Djokovic and Medvedev will be there and threatening at all of them. Uh, he won't do well against Nadal either. Um, right. I think Tsitsipas, it's the same, just a little bit. But his ceiling is higher. Same with Medvedev. So I think, I don't know. I I think this is a this is a big missed chance, and they're going to have to get used to this really soon. But uh, I, I think we should move on to uh, to the champion on the men's side, uh, Hubert Hurkacz, who who beat a ton of great opposition along the way. He beat uh, Raonic, Shapovalov, um, Sinner, Sinner in the final, um, Rublev, and Tsitsipas. So uh, it's two top ten players, four top twenty players. He was a he was a very deserving champion, even though he didn't play his best match of the tournament in the final. Uh, what do you guys? think? Yeah, absolutely. No, honestly, like um, as frustrated as I am, like not frustrated, but like uh, sad that uh, uh, my boys Raonic and Chapo um, w- went down to the same guy. Uh, no shame in that because it's the eventual champion. I always like to think that if my my favorite loses to the eventual cha- cha- champion, there's you know it's a little bit of solace that like at least the guy who beat me went on to win it. So. It's really cool, um, but at the same time, Hurkacz is a player that I've been uh, watching a few times over, and uh, I see him getting like some good wins, and I see him um, challenging some uh, some of those top players. Maybe not necessarily the big three yet, but like at least like the the other guys, like in the top ten, even um, taking them to three sets often, and uh, when not in a Grand Slam, obviously, yeah. but like a, and just kind of flops in the next match when he wins it. Uh, so it's. It was disappointing to see because like, I can see that the guy has a lot of game. He has a big serve, has a nice baseline game. Like, the open stance uh, backhand is probably one of the most talked about shots of this tournament that he has. He also is really capable of the net, even though he doesn't necessarily come out as much. I agree. Very good ball to, today's, today's game and uh, Miami's courts were not necessarily the best to come to the net off. Right. But, um, you, you, can, you, you will be able to see him in the future. Maybe he could come uh, Wimbledon. Um, We'll be able to see him coming up to the net a little bit more often. He's really, really good. He's very complete. Um, so it's really awesome to see that he is actually winning right now and doing well because he was one of the players that I was expecting him to do better a little earlier. But it's um, obviously good to see that this breakthrough happen. And hopefully it's going to be a breakthrough and not just a, a fairy tale match, uh, mm-hmm. tournament for him. Yeah, um, I, I agree with that. I hope that he can build off the success. Uh, to to quickly bring it back to the Andrescu Cerebus Tormo match, uh, Andrescu was thirteen from twenty nine at net in that match. Uh, so I think you're definitely right about uh, the 
conditions not being super conducive to volleying, but he can definitely handle his own from the baseline as well. He defends well. He's, I think he's almost Medvedevian in the way that he defends. He's kind of stretchy, good wingspan. Yeah, he covers the yeah. court really nicely, like the corners, and on the backhand full stretch, he can he can get really good depth on it and a lot of pace, and he can get it right back at your feet. And he's very adept at uh, when he's he's a bit Murray like in that sense because he's comfortable kind of a few feet behind the baseline, and that contrast was really evident in that uh, final against Sinner because um, it was a very windy day and humid. And by the way, he loves the conditions in Florida, which is another big thing because he won Delray Beach. But his knock on the knock on him uh, by some people on that was that he didn't beat any top hundred player uh, in route yeah. to that title. But he proved them all wrong this week with the gauntlet of wins that he had the four in a row against uh, Rounded Chapo and then um, Sitsipas Rublev and then Osinner. But he um, he he proved himself defensively really nicely in that first set. Um, unfortunately, Sinner uh, because of the wind and because of uh, her catches defense he was making him play a lot of balls and Sinner was not uh, was not had that opportunity to serve for the match at uh, serve for the first set at 6-5 and once he blew that you know it could have been a different match had he held on there but uh, her catch was very good at absorbing pace at uh, redirecting at um, just waiting patiently and hanging back and in that first set he made he hit five winners but he made just 11 or 12 unforced errors whereas Sinner hit like 13 winners, but made 28 unforced errors. And he, oh my gosh, those stats are really ghastly, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, it is. And and I think Sinner, he um, he he didn't have his best day, and he was just pressing a lot um, yeah. because and and the wind didn't make make it easy, and that's something he has to work with because right mm. now his footwork is a little bit imprecise, and those mm. little steps. And that's a- it's uh, interesting in that in tougher. the wind he doesn't do incredibly well because a, a player that I know that off that does incredibly well in windy conditions is Rafael Nadal because of his incredible spin. Right. Yeah, and margin. that's one of the biggest characteristics in uh, in Sinner's game is that he has a lot of margin. So he probably just maybe panicked. The situation caught to him a little bit. Yeah, I He's think young, he's 19 years old, but like we'll, we'll see. Maybe, And I agree with you. Maybe his footwork is also not where it should be to be able to get on those shots and with a little bit more time because yeah. the wind can change a little bit of the, the bounce. A little bit imp- how the ball comes at you so yeah yeah a little bit imprecise and i also think that'll come with time when he grows more into his body he'll have a stronger base and For he sure. can yeah. unload and he can get himself in the right footwork uh, right positions of the ball because right now he's a little bit you know still kind of lumbering around the court because his his frame isn't you know he's he hasn't grown he's not a fully grown adult yet he's only 19 yeah. and so and i was looking at some of his uh, stats also he's played very few matches on the atp tour like it just shocked me he's only played 70 matches and he's still only 19 and he's you know, and with a win in Miami, he would have been 14 in the world already. So he's growing at this uh, great rate, and he's so calm and composed on the court. And he was asked afterwards, and it was a very tough loss for him. And he said that mm-hmm. he, uh, you know, that it's uh, you lose and you learn. And he he basically said you win or you learn, which was uh, which was a big quote because it's like he is somebody who's in it for the long haul. You know, these results are good validation in the process but he knows that this is a long-term deal for him you know 10 15 20 years and he sees that larger perspective and he gave some really nice quotes uh, i think like after he lost to medvedev he said that um compared to last year i have improved enormously but there's so much more to do it's as if i'm trying to become a chef now i'm peeling carrots and potatoes but at <laughs> least i'm in the kitchen last year i was outside the kitchen yeah, and so you just see the level of insight and maturity this guy has at 19 years of age. I mean, it's yeah, and, and before he knows it, he will be making soup. 
Yeah, he will, he will be making soup very soon. That's that's yeah. a good point. And yeah. right now he's peeling carrots and potatoes, but he's he's uh, he's definitely in the mix. <laughs> yes. yes, and then good we can have him on here right possibly. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, and I think I think that's all very well said. He he has a great mindset. He manages it very well, especially for someone as young as he is. And I think it's totally understandable that he didn't play his best in this match. It was the biggest match of yeah. his career by far. Difficult opponent, difficult conditions. Uh, he had had a difficult tournament physically and emotionally. Yeah, just but, look at the match against Hatchinov and the matches yeah, against Bautista Good. I mean... Exactly. Which, which, by the way, um, after he got through that match against Hachinov, I did not expect I, oh, him to come I, I, through his yeah. next match. I, I, I was 100% sure he was gassed and he was not going to be able to win. Yeah, I, I, I did not think we would see him in the final uh, by any means. For sure. Um, but I, I will say, with all that said, the final was one of the worst tennis matches I have seen in the last year or couple years, I yeah, think. Yeah, and we have to get used to that because it's like yeah, two alligators, we... you know, jumping into a lake. Like it's, it's <laughs> Yeah, that that is true. I mean, I think... Uh, you know, I did not expect a high-quality match, honestly, just because yeah. I felt like, you know, no big three. We've been spoiled. We've been so, yeah. so spoiled, you know, with, we have. We have. <laughs> with, the, with those three guys that we, we expect, like, flawless tennis, that they're going to produce under pressure. They're going to they're gonna constantly deliver. They're going to change their game plan. They're going to... It's... Uh, it's like the two guys who never even been close to that position. And for somebody like Hercatch, honestly, I, I kind of see him in that Hatchinov chorich kind of mold right now, where those are two mm-hmm. guys who've had deep runs at a Masters 1000 before. And then, you know, they've kind of plateaued or they've stayed in that 16 to 25 range. And so I'm just curious to see whether Hercatch can transfer those results that he had at this Masters 1000 and produce it at a slam, where he can get more yeah. spotlight and more attention and you know, obviously he played that great match against uh, Djokovic at Wimbledon, didn't he? Third round of uh, yeah. 2019. I, I still remember set. that diving volley. Uh, yeah, late in the second. The, those volleys are, that that shows you his net game is uh, is there. Like maybe he can, you know, maybe his best slam will be at Wimbledon. But I just think that uh, now he's got to do that and do it at a major because he's only gotten he made first round of he's only won one match on on clay at the French Open and he's only he's only been basically making second round first rounds. So if he can do it at a slam and produce uh, because he's a guy to me i don't think he should be uh he should have a problem with any surface i think he does well on hard and i think he's yeah. won some big matches on clay before he beat rublev last year in hamburg so on clay so i think he's um i think he can transfer this over and maybe now the the key is will he will he build on this um yeah. And, yeah, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned but, Wimbledon because no one on the ATP in his his ranking range, like plus or minus ten spots, really, besides Batista Agut, has gone deep at Wimbledon, really, or done anything impressive there. So I think if he were to have a good run there this year, that would be an area where he could really set himself apart from his rivals by outperforming them on grass and making a quarter or maybe even a semi if he's a kind draw. Um, but I think you're yeah. totally right. I think his his game will translate well on the surfaces. I think I'm inclined to evaluate him a little more kindly than I would uh, Hatchinov or uh, Chorich, even when they were playing really well, because uh, Hercoc has just won this tournament, and he is at the upper end of that 16-25 to 25 range, but it is difficult to predict how he'll do in the future. He has lost in the first round of the last two majors he's played, so as with all players, yeah. uh, time will tell, really, with him. I do think at some point he can maybe jump into the top 10. Maybe not now, but you know, you know, in a few years, two or three years' time, maybe he can, like, Hachinov was able to do, and I think George got to a career high of number 11. Hmm. And those are just the only two precedents I have of people who have um, kind of had one really big Masters 1000 result, like either a final or a win. In Hachinov's case, he won 
Paris 2018 and he beat like Djokovic and Jack Sock. How could you forget about Jack Sock? (laughs) But yeah, (laughs) of course, course, yeah, him. But uh, but yeah, I mean, he he was basically there for like two, three, four, five weeks, and then after that, he he's kind of disappeared. But yes, (laughs) but at least you know, like Hachinov and Chorich are still there in that 15, 25 range consistently. It's just that they're Mm -hmm. they're losing out these close matches to some of their other peers. Yeah, like Hachinov just lost a really tight match to Sinner, and he lost a tight match to Berrettini, and he's been. I think at some point he even he might turn the corner and you know maybe want to win one of these close matches, and that could give him some confidence too. But we'll maybe. See. I mean, I, I will yeah. say they are in the fifteen to are, like when you said they were in the fifteen to twenty five range, I was surprised because to me it doesn't really feel like they are. I think we haven't seen either of them really have a great result at a major or a tournament in quite a while. I mean, Schwartz saved those match points against uh, Titi Foss at the yeah, US he made Open. The there, but yeah, then... but but then did he lose from two sets up? Uh, um, yes, against yeah. Titi Foss. Uh, no, 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 I think, was, I think uh, that was against was, uh, Zverev. Up wasn't against it? Zverev, he was a set in a break up, and then he okay. lost to lost to Zverev, but he was not the favorite there. But I think yeah, he, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so I, I think, think like he, he did go deep there, but even there. Yeah. He was never going to win that tournament. So I think. Yeah, no. But. Yeah. So I think it's a good point. Like, this is a dangerous area for players to get stuck in. So I think, yeah, like, def- definitely, since this Masters 1000 field was weaker than most of the ones we've had in the last few years, I think he's definitely someone to keep an eye on. Because I think he could get into the top 10, but he could also get stuck, like you alluded to. Yeah. yeah he, I think it's. Some it, help for sure, yeah. you know. I feel like at this tournament, in in a way, it feels like a bit of a free for all. Like in a in a way that we haven't really seen in pretty much any other tournament in the past. Like a, there were some big names missing. It's not like a OHS. Like if you have like for example, just Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer decided to play Miami, that would be already like a completely different uh, game. Um, for everybody would have been probably looking at Federer most of others, even though Federer is a little bit older now and just coming back from. A uh, year off, uh, fourteen months, something like that, off yeah. uh, of the game, and just played like two matches, and then just decided to take a, take a break again. But I think what these players have to try to get used to um, is to being the top players on tour. And it's like yeah. um, the big three aren't going to be there forever. Um, but while they're there, they're they're the top guys, and they know how to be the top guys. They they know how to cope with the pressure, and they know how to win matches. And in a way that it's it's almost like they're not looking at their rankings every time. They're just looking at winning the match at hand. And yeah. uh, in, and they know that sometimes the match is going to be really difficult. So they just put themselves in that micro in the, in that environment. It's like, this is a match and that's it. And I'm going to win it. And they don't really let um, outside things come to them. Obviously, like when the match is over and they say that, yeah, this was in my head or something like this, but I managed to get through it. Um, or think about something else or really focus on every single, you know, um, baseline rally that I was in something like that so mm-hmm. uh, i feel like for for those guys and as you mentioned the pressure probably got to uh tc pass and a little bit Medvedev, even though Medvedev has a um three masters 1000 oh, already yeah, in, in atp finals yeah yeah but like i think that one when they come to a draw um in a big tournament because that's also a big factor it was a big tournament it was miami um right but when they come to those matches i think what they should be coming at a at a point in their minds would be i am winning this thing it's like yeah. i am the favorite i am a top player and um even though i'm chasing whoever's number one or two if i'm number three seed i am right in the mix i am one of the guys who is supposed to be winning this tournament so i'm gonna go and do it and that's one of the things that they should yeah. probably be um not necessarily working on and it's definitely new because 
as we said, like the big three has spoiled us and also made themselves uh, the trio to chase, the players to chase, the players to run after. Um, Such a so tough shoes to fill in, you know, and they're yeah, going to be, and the thing is, they're so, going to be, yeah. they're going to be back now too. So it's not like they're going to yeah. get practice right away of exactly. dealing yeah, with yeah. the pressure. It's like we're talking two, three. This was a sneak peek, almost two, exactly. three, four years yeah. from now. This was not like yeah, a, yeah the, a norm, this is a preview, you know? not the new one. Exactly, the, the, not the, 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 the big three is just they, when it's, when I say big, I think big doesn't even make um, <laughs> just doesn't do justice to how no. big they are. Yeah. They are. They're unreachable. They're the un- unreachable three in a yeah. sense. Like, yeah, obviously, yeah. We're gonna, it's going to take a while before somebody starts breaking their records. So Yeah, yeah. Uh, on Twitter, uh, Juan Jose Vallejo calls them uh, the Holy Triad, which I think is uh, probably a better name for what they've achieved. And, um, and I... Yeah, and I think you yeah. both made great points. I think this is not this is not the changing of the guard. This is not the new normal. This is like a preview, like you said, Vance, to what's to come in two, three, four years. And I think it's almost a shame for these guys that they don't. This won't happen again for a bit because I think it's good practice for like what the next era will be. Yeah, uh, and, and also and they've I, grown up. They've grown up. Can I just add one more thing? It's yeah, like they've of grown up and they've watched the big three play, so they know. They know what their games are all about. They've practiced with them. They've trained with them. They've idolized. Some of them have idolized them. So they have a picture of their mind of, uh, you know, I want to be like Rafa. I want to be like Roger. I want to do all do all of those things. But when they're playing against their own peers, it's strange for them. It's strange yeah. because it's like they haven't played each other much. Hercat, Sitsipas, like these guys, these are new, new rivalries that we're seeing like one, two times. Exactly. We, yeah. we would have seen these matches play up against. And and then when you're when you're expected to win and then you don't and then you have a lead, it's like... It's like they have a lead, but then now I'm the guy that's supposed to win. But then the other guy thinks, like, I'm close to them. Well, I grew up with them. I was as good as her catch. It was like, I was as good as Zverev and Juniors at 1.2. You know, I can I can do it. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, it's it's that I can do it too. And because her catch was, in, was not in the same tier as these guys, he, he has, he doesn't have as much to prove as the other guys in front of him did. And so it was... It's just tough for these guys to like embrace that pressure. You know how Billie Jean Kings always says like pressure is a privilege. Yeah, I think that comes with years and years of experience and metronomic winning of winning of titles that you can only really like embrace that and go out on a court like and then make it look easy to win matches and produce under pressure and that kind of things. And these young guys are just they haven't had that they haven't had that in in their system just now yet and i was gonna make another point but i'm i'm forgetting it now (laughs) yeah while you're forgetting it let's just just move on like maybe uh, trying to finish this uh, in the next 10 minutes so um sounds good yeah let's see uh uh let's move on like for for the next part of the season now which uh while things were good looking good for them on on hard now comes a a whole different beast to beat it's on clay um where we know obviously the biggest challenge is being um dominic team hopefully he's he gets uh fit um and he, he he gets his uh, foot problem uh, resolved, and we obviously have Nadal, which who's a, uh, you know, his. You can never count him out, even even in 2015 when he was his, his yeah. lowest. He's still making like Monte Carlo so, final, I think, and yeah, yeah, yeah and finals he, of the it, took Djok- it took Djokovic to beat him in Roland Garros. Like this yeah. is the level of ridiculous. So like I mean, it's it almost it's it's almost like we're gonna have to wait until. Um, the American hardcore swing come, to come back Probably. for them to start uh, yeah. regaining some footing on the, on the rankings and start getting but some match wins. I do think they'll play yeah, well against yeah. the big three and they'll they'll be competitive. And I think we'll we'll, we'll see an overall better level of play just because they mm-hmm. won't play. No, uh, the overall level of play, like just in 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 general, oh, yeah. the big three are around because will the young guys will be able to play with more freedom. Yeah. And they would when they're all by themselves and it's not two alligators jumping into a lake. To use that analogy yeah. again, but it's, but yeah, but yeah, go ahead. You were gonna, 
continue with Clay. Yeah. Oh no, that was it. Like uh, I was okay. just want to ask you, oh, like, yeah, how, yeah. What, you, what are you guys, what are you guys' feelings on uh, the next steps? Because it's a very different yeah. landscape from the women's tour now. So I, uh, right. I'll say, like, a hope I have for the clay season. While we're talking about the big three, is that Nadal and Djokovic play a really good match against each other on clay because um because that rivalry at its peak was amazing on clay. Like 2009, we had some great battles. Um, 2013, that French Open match, obviously. So whether it's in, I don't know, a Monte Carlo final, Madrid final, or a French Open final, I just hope we see a really competitive match between those two on clay. And as for the next gen, I think, yeah, I'm really interested to see how they do. I think the pressure is probably highest on someone like Tsitsipas, who has established results on clay. He was a set away from the final last year. Uh, He's beaten it all on clay. One of the only ones to have done that. And um, I would really, really love for a team to get healthy again because he he adds another top player on clay with Nadal and Djokovic. So watching those guys duke it out uh, in the clay swing is a lot of fun. It was, um, it's was it been my favorite part of that part of the season for the ATP the last couple of years. So I really hope that we see him healthy, fit, playing well again. Um, and then I think yeah. players like Sinner have a lot of upside on clay as well. Uh, French Open quarterfinal last year. Uh, gave Nadal his toughest set of the tournament. So I, I'm really excited. I think a lot of players have the chance to establish themselves or build on what they've already achieved. Yeah, you pretty much took all the words out of my mouth. My three ah, players to watch were basically Team Sitsipas and Sinner. But thanks. No, yeah. But essentially, yeah, I, I would echo everything you said. And also just like Monte Carlo will be interesting again because we'll have Djokovic back and we'll have Nadal back. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, Team isn't playing, unfortunately, because he's still not quite ready mentally yeah. and also the the, maybe some problems with lingering with the foot but uh, he'll be back soon and then Sinner is playing five tournaments before the French Open so I'm interested to see he's at number 22 right now so I'm interested to see if he can make a push into the top 16 then he can he'll be seated he'll have a higher seat at the French Open so that'll be interesting he can uh, you know avoid potentially having to play one of the big big three guys like in the third round or something yeah, yeah, so instead it would be like a fourth round, or maybe if he can go deep at a Masters, then he can push towards that top eight kind of echelon. But, you know, all that rankings is, rankings aside, like it's more of a long game for him who's like 19. But, yeah. but like I'm interested to see if Sitsipas can, you know, figure out some of his uh, his mental woes and he can get the right balance between uh, not playing, like overplaying, and then also, you know, getting the matches, but then also like winning one of these big matches. Like uh, he beat Nadal at Madrid. Uh, in 2019, uh, that you alluded to, Owen, mm-hmm. and then he also pushed Djokovic to five last year at the French Open in the semis. Yeah, after being down two sets to love. Fourth so set, he was constantly under pressure on serve too. That was really impressive. Right. Yeah, and then uh, and then yeah, and he was dealing with an injury although also meanwhile, yeah. and so that was uh, so it was impressive that he he got so far, and then he almost uh, yeah he almost got to the final, and then he. You know, he almost won Hamburg the week before that. And so it'll be interesting to see if he can, like, make another big run and, you know, beat a Djokovic or something on clay or Nadal. And, yeah, and then suddenly, uh, you know, a lot of the players, you know, this is their time of the year because they live, like, some of the French players will, will hopefully we'll see again, like, Monfils or something. And, you know, RBA becomes, I'd say, less of a factor on clay than somebody like Akrana Busta is really good on clay too. Like he made a French Open quarterfinal last year. So he'll always be a, somewhat of a factor. Fabio Fanini has won a Masters 1000 at Monte Carlo. <laughs> right. And he can, and when he peaks on his day, he can, you know, he can give Nadal a good run, I'd yeah, say. Yeah, he's beaten him three times on clay. 
Right, exactly. And then, and then of course, then you have the questions of Federer, you know, where, where is he going to fit in? You know, how much will he play? How much is the French Open still mean to him? You know, that kind of thing. Like, will he be healthy enough? Will his knees, you know, on a, potentially it's a softer surface than hard court. So maybe, maybe he'll get back, but his focus is, you know, peaking for the grass, Wimbledon and Olympics and second half of the year. But it'll be interesting to see where does he fit into it and which tournament he decides to play, I think. I wonder if, because uh, Federer, I think he said he was going to play Roland Garros for sure. So yeah. I'm just wondering if he just expects, um, not expects, but he, he has like in this mind, it's like, yeah, who knows? Maybe Nadal is going to lose and maybe Djokovic is going to lose as well. They're getting older also. So yeah. you know, Nadal could win for forever. So, you know, maybe this is going to happen if, if the draw opens up for him. I think he's, he's pretty much in the mix too. I mean, <laughs> yeah, if he can get, if he can get, his, if he can get some matches in before and he can play like a, like, you know, he's, he's, People are saying he's probably going to play just Madrid and maybe Rome yeah. and then the French. But then it's kind of like he's been missing in action for 14 months. And it's like, you know, just the two matches in Doha on those uh, courts is very different from, you know, these playing these hard grinding clay court matches here. And so mm-hmm. maybe maybe I'm curious to see if he'll elect to play like a 250, like a Munich or an Estoril or something like that mm-hmm. just before Madrid or, you know, just straight jump into Madrid. That's fine, too. But it's yeah. like... Then he has to pace himself, uh, and then yeah, yeah. I think I think I think the tennis world would lose it if Federer goes to twenty one first at Roland Garros. <laughs> I mean, and then the other be... the other asterisk is whether the French Open will even happen because there's yeah, rumors right it, now there's from words the BBC that it's going to be delayed. Yeah, it's or it could be postponed. And then the question is, where will it be, and how will they? Like last year, they kind of just did a land grab, and they they took that spot away from you know some other tournaments in the Asian swing, right? Because the Asian swing didn't happen last year. And so it was able to happen like right after the U S open two weeks later, it was the French with Rome in between, but essentially this year, um, the Asian swing is still on and there's the vaccine rollout in France is, um, there's more COVID cases and the vaccine rollout isn't what it is in the U S and some of the North American places. So that'll be, that'll be interesting to follow that basically. And then also, yeah, like Monte Carlo is going to start next week already. So it's oh, it's so exciting because it didn't so happen exciting, in, yeah. in 2020. It's one of the most picturesque yeah. tournaments on There's tour. There's not going to be any fans, but it'll be yeah. it'll be very interesting. The tennis. Really it will still look really good. Yes, yeah, exactly. It's that's, a beautiful place. Beautiful. Yeah, if I could pick one yeah. tournament to go to, that's not yeah, a major. I might pick that one. Yeah. Yeah, I think mm. I think uh, tennis in Aloha did like a poll on Twitter, and it won like uh, best Masters 1000, like most. Uh, most, yeah, uh, I, I think it won most beautiful court. Most I, beautiful I voted court, for uh, Pietron like Heli. Yeah. I, I mispronounced that, but yeah, it was oh, a deserving yeah. winner. Yeah, yeah. What are you excited about, Andre? Yeah, on the clay season, yeah. I am excited for clay season. For, for, for I, I'm excited for it because we are, you know, it's it's back in the normal position of the year, so it feels right, and uh, and it, it's always a, it's always a joy to get back to to that time. Um, mm-hmm. And getting Monte Carlo, Madrid as well, who, which also got canceled. So overall, I'm just excited and hopeful that we're going to have a full clay court season in the right spot. Like not necessarily um, if we forget to like have a tournament or two like delayed, uh, I think that would be fine. But if we can get like all of them running over and then Roland Garros before Wimbledon, I think that would be um, a really good, um, you know, sense of normality uh, again, mm-hmm. even though it's... Uh, long way running until we uh, get to um, back to actual normalcy but like I feel like um, 
just that would just give us a little bit more of like a breather and just like a, a nice um, site in front of us to see clay court season in the correct months of the calendar. Yeah, that's, that's so true. So yeah. What, one other thing I, I forgot I, to. I, I am very excited for for clay just Sorry. because I just because I, I love it. No, no worries. I'm just finishing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one more thing I forgot to add when you asked about players that I'm looking forward to uh, seeing. Uh, since he already mentioned Team Sitsipas Center, I was going to say I'm also interested to see if uh, uh, one of the best American prospects right now in the game is Sebastian Corda. Mm, and he, yeah. he had a fourth-round run at the French Open last year and quali- qualified. And he obviously did extremely well in Miami. He beat Schwartzman and yep. Fanini and Karatsev. And, and uh, tight match against improving. Rublev, too, even and though he was struggling physically. Yeah. Rublev, right. It was 7-5, 7-6, and 9-7 in the, yeah. the tiebreak, and he was struggling physically. And he was a little injured as well. Eh? Exactly, yeah. He was, he was injured towards the end of the second set, and he... Uh, he still managed to almost squeak it out, and it was very tight between the two. And he he just has such compact strokes and really good um, depth. He's able to get on his ground strokes, and he you know people compare him to Burdich with the pure strike that he has on his ground strokes. And I definitely see that comparison. And his serve isn't uh, quite the weapon yet, but it'll get there. Mm-hmm. And he's he's got such a you know just he makes the game look easy. He has compact swings, free-flowing shots, and he has a good, men- strong mentality. His dad is a Grand Slam champion. He's made a French yeah. Open finalist, by the way, uh, Peter Corda. Mm-hmm. And he's he's even more uh, mentally composed than his, his dad was. Yeah. Uh, and so he's uh, he's a he's probably our best pro- prospect on the American side because uh, Andre, you guys you guys have a lot of great uh, Canadians, young Canadians coming up, and there's nobody. Our highest ranked uh, American right now is Taylor Fritz at 28 in the world. Yeah, uh, on so the ATP. Can, yeah, on the ATP side. Yeah, um, not on the WTA side. Obviously, we have a lot. Yes, but, that that is a much much better picture uh, for but, the Americans. Uh, yeah. But yeah, but so I'm excited to see how he does because he's very good on clay and uh, and hard court. Uh, as well and he's um, yeah i'm I, i'm kind of curious to see how he does because um i watched a lot of him in delray and i remember thinking that when the rallies lengthened he would spray a little bit so i'm curious to see how he'll do on clay and if he can fix that part of his game because i think if he can sustain his accurate power he's going to be really really dangerous and i think it bodes very well for him that he managed it pretty well on the slow courts in miami this year so he's right. definitely someone who i'll have my eye on as well watch yeah, exactly. And if you can do that to Schwartzman on these slow hard courts, I mean, that yeah, looks really well for your future. Really, really impressive. I, I think that match could have been over in straights even. Um, Schwartzman right, did yeah. well to dig in and make it as close as he did. It was a mismatch for mm-hmm. a while. Yeah. Nice. So I guess that, that covers it. Like, um, mm-hmm. Obviously, I, I think my main reason to be excited for a clay court season is kind of a little bit like what, what Owen said a little bit earlier, is that I just, I'm just excited to see um, big three action again. And, you know... Yeah. Maybe just get as much as we can from them before um, each of them retire in their own time. But yeah, like excited for this. And um, we'll be, we we keep our eyes open in the next room. And now we have Charleston going on in the US. Uh, And then next week, I guess you mentioned it's Monte Carlo, which is super exciting. So we'll just um, keep our eyes on that. And um, we'll be here with another podcast soon. Hopefully, it's not going to take another two weeks again. (laughs) So something like that. But yeah, we'll be trying to be more active. But you know, it's a, Things get a little bit more normal, so yeah. get work and stuff like that. So, um, wishing you guys uh, good luck on your finals and final essays and things like that, that you have to write. And uh, yeah, I'll see you guys soon. Yeah, th- bye bye. Thanks, Andre. So nice to be back. Bye. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Andre. It was it was great to talk tennis again, and I thoroughly enjoyed these these discussions. We covered we covered a lot of ground. So, yeah, loved it. Sweet. All right. See you guys next time. Bye.
planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.